22, Luke 22, verses 53, or 54, Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, pardon me. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us according to what you would have us learn. Help us, Lord, to take up your word, store it away in our hearts, that we might not sin against you, that we might glorify you with a life carefully, principally led by the word of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read two other texts to you. Uh, They're found within our same book. They're very brief, but I I want to be aware of them uh, as we examine this text this morning. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Peter had affirmed something extraordinary. He was the first one to say it, but this is what he said. Jesus is asking his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ our God, or the Christ of God. And here in the same chapter this week, after Peter has already expressed an extraordinary understanding of who Christ is, that Jesus is more than just simply a prophet, that Jesus was more than just simply a man, uh, but that he was indeed the Son of God, and more than that, he is, in fact, uh, the Messiah. Peter has also said in chapter 22, verse 31, uh, these very words, Simon, Simon, uh, Jesus is speaking to him. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison And to death. It's an extraordinary series of statements that the Lord Jesus hears Peter pronounce. One, he has pronounced this understanding, this 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 clear understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. And in another parallel passage in one of the other Gospels, Jesus replies to that extraordinary statement of faith and tells Peter, "No one but the Holy Spirit of God could have told you this." 
It's an extraordinary statement. And then in verse chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, Jesus is warning Peter. He is he's, he's telling him of events that are soon to take place. And Peter, Peter is not, not questioning in any sense of the word his own devotion to Jesus. He, he's utterly devoted. And we should not either. This is an extraordinary passage uh, that shares with us the, the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ, by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. One whom we know, looking forward throughout the book of Acts, that he does extraordinary things in the name of Christ. He serves him to the very last day of his life, we know. We understand as he dies in Rome, crucified differently than the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified upside down, feeling that as the church holds in tradition that he died crucified, uh, having been crucified upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way as the Savior. We know that Peter loves the Lord. We've heard the confession that Peter made in chapter 9, that he knows that Jesus, he believes with all his heart that Jesus is the Christ of God. He believes that Jesus is the, 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 the Messiah. He he has faith. He, is, he loves the Lord Jesus. He's devoted to Christ. He's even willing to defend the life of Christ and to die for Jesus. We, we know that. Uh, recently, he had taken up a sword. He was one of the few disciples who had a sword. He sliced the ear off one of the servants of the men who came to take away the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's the first one to strike out and to take off the man's ear. Jesus, of course, heals his ear and tells Peter to put that sword back. But Peter is, even by the profession that Jesus makes, Peter is Jesus' friend. Peter is Jesus' friend. He has confessed Jesus as Christ. He is the hope of Israel. He He has confessed him as Messiah, the fulfillment of every promise of the forgiveness of sins. He believes that he is the servant, the servant of God of which Isaiah sings in chapter 42 and 49 and 52 and 53. Everything the Old Testament says about the Messiah, and even all the way back as Genesis 3.15, Peter believes that that is Jesus. That is Jesus. Even in this passage, we see Peter's love for Jesus. He has remained with him. He has perhaps even taken his own life into his own hands as he has entered into the gates, within the gates of of Caiaphas' house. He is the high priest, and he is in the courtyard of that house, warming his hands by the fire. He's in enemy territory. He has remained with him, perhaps even to the point of endangering himself. Others have run away, but Peter and John are there. John seems to have some connections within the religious aristocracy that uh, has so beset Israel, and, uh, and he has brought Peter in with him. And we don't really know what Peter plans to do next. What is Peter's plan as he's in the courtyard warming his hands by the fire with these people who are looking at him over the fire? I love the way in in the Greek, the language is such that within this passage, it seems that the fire has moved to reveal the the face of Peter, and then they recognize him. The language is is, is pretty interesting. It it, it says in some ways that the the fire or the, the illumination that was thrown off by the fire eventually worked its way up to Peter's face. 
and reveals who he is. Then the servant girl looks at him and says, surely you were one of them. And that's the first time when trouble begins to rear its head for Peter. We see two things in this passage. The first is Peter's sin, and the second is Christ's mercy. Peter's sin and Christ's mercy. Have you ever had someone stare at you from another table? And they keep looking up over their food, and they've got a they've got a mouthful of food. It's on their fork, and they kind of stop before it even gets in the mouth, and they're just looking at you. And you realize, am I supposed to know this person? Or maybe you've looked up in similar fashion, and you've caught the eye of somebody, and they're talking, and you realize, I'm supposed to know this individual. I've reached the point in my life where I'm I'm supposed to know them, and I know that I know them, but I can't remember their name. Whereas I used to be able to remember people's names. Now I I can't remember people's names at all. I still remember faces, though. But maybe you can pick out a face from the crowd. Well, this young servant girl did, and she recognized Peter. He is recognizable. Uh, He has a particular speech. We, we, We see in the third instance when someone recognizes him, a Galilean accent or dialect, uh, um, and and it's recognizable. He also has been out front with Jesus. Wherever Jesus has gone, Peter has gone. Peter is numbered amongst the three, Peter, James, and John, who are closely uh, associated with the Lord. They walk closely with him. Oftentimes when he leaves the other uh, the, the others, uh, he will go forward with the three. He has gone up. They have gone with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the deeper portion where the Lord walked away from the others and went into deeper consult with, with the Father. He, and he left those three there. Well, he's, he's, he has been loud when he was with Jesus, too. It, it, Peter is an impetuous individual, isn't he? Um, Peter is the one who takes the sword out of his scabbard and slices the ear off. Peter is the one who says, I'll never leave you, Lord. Uh, Peter is the one who loudly protests when Jesus is on the ground washing feet. Now, you shall never wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no heritage whatsoever. And you, you, you are not my, my, my servant. Lord, wash my feet and wash the rest of me. Peter is like that, and he's recognizable. Uh, he's not someone in the background, and so this young woman sees him. And there's a there are three levels of, of recognition. Uh, the, the, one says this first servant girl, um, this one was together with him, and she points right to him. And then uh, the second one is a different person, but another servant girl, most likely there in the courtyard. Uh, you were also with him, she says. And then the third one, your Galilean accent gives you away. Surely you were with him. Uh, And there are three levels of denial. And they are with vehemence. Uh, First, it's kind of like when when someone interacts with you and and says, uh, let's let's say uh, you don't like uh, Brussels sprouts and you feel very, very strongly about that. You say, Man, I do not like Brussels sprouts. We, we add words to, to, to add emphasis. And so Peter's doing that. And his response initially, firstly, was, Woman, I am not acquainted with him. Literally. And then secondly, Man, I am not one of them. And then thirdly, 
Man, I don't know what you're saying. And in each instance, the no is emphatically placed near the beginning of the sentence. Peter is strongly denying that he knows the Lord. There's a repetition here and, and a deepening in degrees of sin. And one would think that after the first denial, Peter would remember only hours ago, the Lord Jesus said, I will deny him three times. And that was the first one. But he has no recognition of that until he finally repeats the third one. And it's then when the cock crows that he understands that he has just done what he said he would never do. You know, sin is like that, isn't it? It's very difficult to stop when the mind has entertained the notion or the temptation to sin. The moment we begin deliberating about the possibilities, the pluses, the minuses, the negatives, the positives, we have already lost the battle with sin. We are going to engage. Most likely, more often than not, we are, we are, we are simply working out the circumstances of it. We are simply rationalizing why we are going to do it. It's, it's so difficult to stop or to pull back when the thought has entered the head. When we've denied or made excuses for sin in response to the immediate response of the Holy Spirit, when he tells us, no, don't do this. And it's, so, it's, it's sobering and it's shocking that Peter committed this sin. He's an apostle. He's a close associate of the Lord Jesus. He's the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was near within his counsels and he was loved by the Lord. And in verse 46 of this chapter, only moments before, if not a few hours, Jesus had told them, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's a direct command, and it's one that the Lord Jesus himself gave as an example. Did he not? He is there that evening after he has spoken, and they have enjoyed the upper room supper and discourse. He then goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves behind the other nine, and he goes with the three, or eight, because Judas has abandoned them at that point, but he goes with the other three, and then he goes a few feet beyond them, And he has been praying, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine. Jesus has been a wonderful example of what it means to rely utterly upon the Lord and to be in complete submission to the, the will of God the Father. Peter was in need of praying, and Jesus had laid a command upon him that he should pray that he might not enter into that hour of temptation. Peter's Peter's life doesn't really seem to be in question in the moment. Uh, He's just there with a group of servants around the fire. There are servants and servant girls. The first two are servant women. Yet Peter vehemently denies that he knows Jesus. John is in the courtyard too. John is not under threat of death at that point. And yet he denies the Lord. J.C. Ryle describes it this way. It was a great sin. We see a man who had followed Christ for these three years, who had been forward in professing faith 
and love towards him, a man who had received boundless mercies and loving kindnesses and had been treated by Christ as a familiar friend, we see this man denying three times in a row that he knows Jesus. It was a sin committed under circumstances of great aggravation. Peter had been warned plainly of his danger, and he had heard the warning. He had just been receiving the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper from Jesus himself, and he had just been loudly declaring that though he died with Jesus, he would not deny him. And it was a sin committed under apparently small provocation. Two women make the remark that he was with Jesus. And those who stood by may say, surely you're one of them, but no threat seems to have been used, no violence to have been done, but it was enough to overthrow Peter's faith. He denies him before them all. It's a truly humbling sight to see an apostle of Christ crumble like that. Indeed, he did. Peter crumbled. And it shows the sinfulness of sin, doesn't it? Denial that that, that sin fundamentally involves these things. A denial of the claims of the Messiah. A refusal to lean upon grace. A rejection of divine power and, and, and help. It, it, every sin is an attempt to do away with God. Every sin is a denial of God and in His person, His sovereignty, His rule. But the truth is that lips which can claim Him and, ex, and claim extraordinary things of Christ can also deny Him just as readily. There's a lesson for us here in how sin originates in the heart. Presumption. Peter was guilty of presumption, even though the Lord told him, Peter, you will do this. Peter, you need to pray and set aside in your heart that when the temptation comes, that God will help you. Peter refused to do that. There was a great deal of presumption and pride behind his answers, behind his attitude. It was an unwillingness to receive a rebuke. There was a prayerlessness there in him. We are not told that he prayed like Jesus did, asking of God that he would help him. He engaged in sleep when he should have been praying. Oh, how often do we do that? When we should be praying and we think that our greatest need is a little bit more sleep. When we should arise 15 minutes to half an hour early, and begin our day with God. You remember when Jesus came back and the disciples were sleeping. They had need to sit up and to beg of God that he would help them in the hour of temptation. Peter had that need. He had neglected his own soul. He had neglected to rely on the means of grace. He had refused divine aid. And to be frank, we all do too in so many different ways. We love our sleep. We are prideful about our spiritual condition. We overestimate ourselves, don't we? And we underestimate the temptations that we will face. We overestimate our our strength and our abilities. We overestimate our giftedness. I remember years ago, a young man having an argument with him when I was in college And I was at that point married. I had children, three children, and I was attending college with the intention of going to seminary. I had gone back to college at a later age. And in in this uh, worldview class we had at uh, 
a professor was talking about watching a particular movie. I won't even mention what it is. And um, and I, I, I asked the professor, how can you justify watching that movie? It is a, it, it is a movie known for its... It's it's nudity and language, it's filth, and he he had watched it for some reason. He explained to us that he had watched it for its his its his his desire to understand the cultural innuendos uh, innuendos of of America. Uh, it was very interesting his reasoning for it, and I didn't agree with him. And and up jumped this young man. And he turned around. He threw his finger out in my face, and he said, "You Pharisee." And he began to explain how he himself, with his young wife, could go to filthy movies and uh, where there's lots of nudity and all sorts of lustful con- uh, situations and temptations to sin, language used. And he said, what I do is I go and I depend utterly on the Holy Spirit of God to protect me from temptation. Well, I didn't call him any names, but I think that's extremely foolish. Peter, thinking he can rely on his own strength, thinking that he will stand in the day of great temptation, folds immediately, without hesitation. I love that word, he crumbled. He did. Peter crumbled. And to think that we can fully engage in sin or the neglect of the means of grace on a regular basis and that we'll stand in the day of temptation is utterly foolish. Peter needed to pray. Peter needed to rely on the Lord. Peter Peter should have said, Lord, I can't imagine any scenario where I will ever abandon you. I feel in my heart that I will never leave you and never forsake you. However, you know me better than I know myself. And the truth is that I am a sinner. And I am, I am capable of far more than I realize. The Holy Spirit has shown me that. Therefore, I will pray and beg God, my Father, to keep me in that moment and ask the Holy Spirit faithfully to abide with me in my hour of need. But he didn't. Presumption and pride, unwillingness sometimes amongst ourselves to accept a rebuke, a lack of prayer, a full indulgence of our own desires for entertainment or or of self-indulgence, sometimes a refusal to attend church, Refusal to worship the Lord faithfully, neglect of the Christian community and the benefit that that comes from participating in the body of Christ and 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 the enjoyment we have each one of us in serving one another and in, in benefiting from the gifts that each of us has within the body of Christ. If we are going without those things, we are we are bankrupt spiritually. Bankrupt. And when the day of temptation or of trial or of suffering comes, where will we be? We have fundamentally, by our negligence, denied the Lord. And it will be far easier when the day comes when we have neglected the Lord and the disciplines of grace for so long. When crisis comes, we will fold, we will crumble. Peter is not prepared when crisis comes. There's a continuing lesson here for all of us and how quickly sin will catch us if we are relying on ourselves and our own inner strength when we are 
tested. And secondly, and thankfully, we come to Jesus' mercy. Firstly, we saw Peter's sin, but now we see Jesus' mercy. While these events are unfolding, there are other events that Matthew records for us and Mark as well. That Jesus is enduring this sham trial. There are false witnesses. There are claims of, you remember the, the circumstances. It's, it's nighttime. It's very late at night. And the law of God that these Pharisees and Sadducees, these scribes, these high priests know, and we'll, we'll explore that in the weeks to come. They know that it is illegal for them to do what they're doing. It is against the law of God that any any trials need to be in the full light of day, that, a, a, uh, that, that, that one who is accused has a right for a self-defense. They don't grant any of that to him. He's able to call witnesses in defense of his name. They don't call any witnesses. In fact, they have two out in the yard, right by the fire, but they don't call them. It's illegal for them to do this outside of and away from where the Sanhedrin meets. In fact, it's in the private home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Everything about these trials, we'll explore this a little bit more in the, in the next few weeks, but everything about these trials is completely and totally illegal. And they know it. In fact, it goes on to say in Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, 63 and following, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is after, as he's claiming to be a representative of the living God, I adjure you by the living God. He has just gotten done saying uh, that, that, that they have pulled in witnesses, wicked men who are false, wicked men who are wicked and false in their uh, bringing of charges against Jesus. What did they say? What did they have against him? This man said, I will destroy the temple of God and I will raise it back up in three days. That's the blasphemy they're going to take his life for. And now Caiaphas piously says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it's the first time he speaks, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. That means he will be sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answer, He deserved death. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus looks up with his face covered with the spit of these filthy men and with the bruises of their beatings, and he looks directly in that moment because he is the sovereign God. And he looks directly in the face of Peter. I don't believe he looked at his face with accusation, I believe he looked at Peter, knowing that in that moment, Peter was in great need. Peter was in need of help. And Peter was helpless. How isolated Jesus was. How alone and sovereign and majestic and glorious our Savior is that he would endure such hateful torment 
and treatment by wicked sinners. And yet he is fully aware of Peter's denial. And he hears each blow as Peter says, I do not know him. I am not aware of him. I'm not acquainted with him. I tell you, I have not been with this man. And Jesus looks up at this lost sheep that is in dire need. How awful it must have been. What a wound to his great heart. The grief that it must have accompanied that moment. And he looks into the face of the one who has just denied him. And yet how wonderful. Our Savior is as he stood giving account of his trial, working for the salvation of the world, working for the salvation of all who would believe in him, who had ever believed in him, whoever would believe in him, and who would ever be brought into the fold of his grace, looks up in that moment knowing that Peter had let go of him, and the Lord Jesus in that moment refusing to do so in the same way. Christ's words are very real. Peter, I am praying for you. And we we spoke about that weeks ago. His later restoration of Peter would come. And he would ask him in subsequent chapters, he will ask him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And in that thrice affirmation of Peter's love for Christ, he is restoring The heart of Peter broken by his sin is restoring what has been broken. And that's what the Lord Jesus does. He restores lost sinners. He restores each of us when we deny the Lord by our conduct and our embrace of sin. Peter could stand up eventually in Acts chapter 4 and he has just healed a young uh, a man who has been from birth lame. He has not been able to walk. And Peter pulled him forward and said, In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I command you to walk. And he jumps up and he's clinging to them. And of course the religious authorities jail Peter and John. And they're in jail and they pull them out the next morning realizing that they cannot charge these men at night because it was illegal to have a trial at night. The next morning they come and Peter is there and Annas the high high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent and they place them in the center and they began to inquire by what power in what name have you done this? Imagine healing a man. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them rulers and elders of the people see how different Peter's confession is now. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which came the chief cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved what an extraordinary difference what's the difference the only difference is that peter is filled with the holy spirit 
Peter is relying not on himself to stand in his own strength when the day of temptation comes. He is relying on the Lord. And the Lord was with him. And so Peter was bold in the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, where is your heart today? If every sin, and it is, if every sin is a betrayal of God, if every sin, and it is, if every sin is a denial of God and a desire to, or, or, or an effort to kill off God in our thinking, where's your heart today? Have you come from a week of constant, but small, you think, but, but very consequential denials of the Lord? Don't we deny the Lord when we embrace sin? Don't we deny the Lord when we do not do what we ought to have done? Don't we deny the Lord when we do what we ought not to do? Have we been denying His uh, His Lordship over us, His rights and His claims over us? Have we walked away from the Lord, forsaken His Word, forsaken Him in the moment of our sins? Have we placed ourselves in a position of neglecting the Word of God? Have we neglected the grace of God? Have we neglected the voice and help of the Holy Spirit of God? Can we see, and do we see, the wickedness of our sins? We need a Savior who will love us without fail. We need a Savior, one who who has self-denying love, one who has made a commitment to us to be faithful even when we are unfaithful. We need a Savior, someone who has pledged his very life to reconcile us to God. We need someone who will save us from our sins and forgive us of our iniquity and of our abandonment of him and confess our wretchedness to him. All those sins we have already sinned, all those sins we have still yet to commit because we are sinners in a fallen world. There is someone who will love and restore you even today. Someone you have forsaken in so many different ways and through so many different embraces of sin against whom we have acted treacherously, before whom we have crumbled. There's only one who will love you that way. And he stands today with all the markings of his suffering, looking at his failed and forsaken feeling disciple, feeling as if God could never forgive me of my sin. And surely the Lord would never turn his gaze toward me and restore me after I have abandoned and forsaken him. Each of us knows what it is to see the glance of the Savior. And what we need to do is look fully in his face, his beautiful face, and to recognize that he will strengthen us, he will forgive us, he will restore us, He will confirm us, and one day we will stand in his presence, blameless and with great joy. If we have faith in him, and we have entrusted ourselves to him, and if we have confessed our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Let's pray.